This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. When, when I think when I think of China and, and to have an unclassified discussion about it, I think of, I think of it as a, a three-stranded cable. That's Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. We sat down for a wide-ranging discussion about threats to the U.S. and China emerged as number one. And that three-stranded cable he mentioned? The first strand is Xi Jinping, China's president. The second, his Belt Road Initiative. And the third is their military buildup. And he says it's all held together by a sheath. That sheath represents the, the largest theft of intellectual property in the history of mankind. That and much, much more are a part of a truly insightful interview with Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. Throughout the years, when I've had the chance to sit down and talk with a director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, I've learned more in that hour or so than I have in many of the other hours throughout the entire course of the year. This was no different. General Scott Barrier talked in depth about China, about Russia, North Korea, Iran, terrorism. He talked about the threats. He talked about challenges. He talked about his vision. And he talked about the enormous responsibility that he and all of the people that work for DIA face, especially him in the place where he works. I'm humbled every time I walk into this office. It's just uh, such an honor to be here. And so many great leaders have served uh, inside DI, and so many wonderful people work here now. It's just a pleasure and honor. And this will be, I'm sure, my last assignment in the military, and uh, what, a, what a great way to finish, but, but so much to do. Would you tell me, I guess right off the bat, um, what your vision is for this work, for this office, for what you're doing in this role? Sure. So when you, when you think about, uh, and, and I'm going to give you a little background on, on DIA just to sort of set it up a little bit, JJ. When you think about uh, DIA, uh, 16,500 strong, it's a mix of uh, about 70% civilian and 30% uh, military. Uh, when we first started out 60 years ago, it was kind of the other way around. It was mostly military, but that's, that's changed over time. So we, we're an all-source analysis agency that also does collection. And so if you think about collection, that's human intelligence collection, and that's also technical collection. And so we're this um, unique um, thing within the intelligence community that, that collects, processes, analyzes, and then disseminates uh, intelligence information on behalf of uh, the Department of Defense. So top customer, of course, is always the president, but the Secretary of Defense, uh, the chairman, the, the department staff across the river, uh, and support to our combatant commands, and I, th- I think the really the really interesting thing about DI and what makes us really unique is just this this uh, global footprint that we have. And if you think about it, 
We have um, our attache corps in 140 different countries and accredited in to over 180. Those are 180 partnerships that we have. And then we, we, uh, we man all of the combatant command joint intelligence operations centers, all the J2 JIACs, if you will. And so that gives us a really, really unique perspective into what's happening across the Department of Defense um, within our combatant commands and then within other countries as well. And so we've got this really unique platform and footprint. And for us right now, JJ, it's, it's really about um, setting the table for support to strategic competition for the Department of Defense. And so my vision for the agency and what we've worked on for the last year is really how do we posture ourselves uh, to deliver this national-level intelligence to the, to the department's uh, what I call Title X strategic competition problem against Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, violent extremist organizations, uh, and others. And we can go into the details of, of how we've, we've, we've gone about that, but we're in the initial stages right now, and I feel like we're, we're postured to, to do just that. So, you know, we, um, we have responsibility for foundational military intelligence, which means um, if there's a military out there, it's our job to understand them. Um, what their capabilities are, what their locations are, and, and we do that very, very well. And it's also about balancing uh, the resources at the right time to make sure that we can support the department's strategic competition problem. So I hope that I hope that answers the question. It was probably a long way to get there, but but I hope, I hope that does. Yes, that's fine. That's precisely what I needed. Um, before we dig a little deeper into some of the other elements of your work, um, you mentioned something, and it occurred to me that I've never asked this question before. But you talked about your attaches being in 180 countries. What exactly do your attaches do? Well, number one, attaches there are uh, are there to represent the uh, Department of Defense and the Secretary uh, and the Chairman. And if you think about an attaché, this is a, this is a, a military officer or non-commissioned officer uh, that has been detailed uh, to the uh, to the direct uh, to the Defense Intelligence Agency to be representation. Um, inside those countries, you know, first and foremost, their their job is to observe and report of what's happening in that other country, and uh, you know, it's um, it's pretty interesting to get their insights on the ground um, when it happens immediately. So, think of the coup in Burma. Our uh, attaché folks there were reporting that as it happened, and that's uh, that's it's time sensitive and it's uh, it's firsthand and it's uh, on scene and on time. And so they they uh, they do so much. They also they also form partnerships with these countries that they're in and. They provide the, the liaison at the right time from the secretary to, uh, to these countries and their militaries. That's fascinating. Um, I've heard a lot of people refer to attaches as spies, but they basically that's, they collect information, and um, they use that information. And it's done openly. It's not like it's hidden. Um, and it is done in a way that I think probably gives you some insight, expert insight, into things that, you know, would be necessary in these 180 countries, especially today with the way that the world is changing and the way that threats change regularly. It, it is open. In fact, here in Washington, D.C., we have the, uh, the Attaché Association, and these are all uh, military representatives from their countries, and uh, they're doing the same thing, observing and reporting. It is in the open. Uh, we understand that. They understand that, and it gives us tremendous insights, actually. You just released a new strategy, um, and part of what I wanted to get to with you on that is you talked a little bit about this global competition strategy, um, the need to figure out the road, the path ahead on that. Tell me how this new strategy um, guides you or, uh, I guess, uh, facilitates your objectives there. Right. So um, let me let me back up and start this journey when I when I first got here and started asking questions about how we were postured because we did we sort of did two things at one time. 
we uh, we took a step back with a thing called an integrated study group with a bunch of senior leaders in the agency and um, I asked questions about how we were postured for strategic competition and what we what we might do better if we needed to do better and they took about three months uh, to study policies um, how we're postured what our footprint is what we look like in terms of balancing uh, priorities across the agency and at the same time we started taking a look at uh, the last strategy that we had and and developing that as well and so really two things sort of uh, unfolded organically together. The integrated study group came back with some recommendations to um, slightly reorganize where we are uh, internally to DIA to, to get to get postured for strategic competition, and I'll talk about that in a second. And at the same time, uh, the strategy morphed a bit. Uh, we used to be uh, we used to have a capabilities-based strategy that was threat agnostic. In other words, we needed to do some things in the agency. Uh, to get postured for strategic competition, and we developed um, we, we developed a plan to modernize JWix. Uh, we developed plans to uh, to transition uh, this database called MIDB to another database called Mars, which is infused with AI and ML. And so we needed to carry that one step further. So the strategy that we have now is is really more of a threat based strategy uh, that will be informed with uh, certain kind of capabilities that the the agency can bring. And so it really it really gets after um, intelligence advantage really talks about partnerships, um, really speaks to um, how we can leverage all the capabilities of the agency to uh, to be able to posture uh, the Department of Defense to better compete. Yeah, that was my next group grouping of questions. Um, specifically, what are the most significant current threats facing DIA and the nation? So as I as I spoke to, uh, to um, several different uh, congressional forums about, about threats and, and open testimony, um, I view I view China as, as uh, you know, the pacing threat uh, to our nation right now. Uh, they are a key uh, competitor for strategic competition, uh, followed closely by, by Russia. I view Russia as an existential threat given, given their nuclear capabilities and their nuclear triad. Uh, and, then, and then as uh, clearly as the national defense strategy laid out, uh, regional threats like uh, Korea and Iran are becoming uh, much more threatening with the military capabilities that they're developing. And then as you as you put that drop back there, it's it's also about terrorism. And, and as we have seen, um, there there is an expansion of terrorism in, in different places now. Uh, the war on terror uh, in, in, uh, after 9-11 uh, is much different and looks much different today, uh, but it's as dangerous today. And uh, if we don't keep an eye on that, um, those elements could strike the homeland, and we have to we have to be very careful about that. Speaking about um, Russia, specifically Russia's aggression in the last few years, um, I mean, they've always been aggressive, but now they have some new tools and some new mm-hmm. tactics, I think, maybe, um, that have been aided by technology um, that they are using, n- namely this, this hybrid warfare thing that I think a lot of people in this country still don't get. Mm-hmm how information is an incredible tool for what they are doing. And I remember, I see your patch here from NATO being in Sofia Mm -hmm. in 2016 at the CD&E conference, um, moderating a panel discussion about this hybrid warfare business with Mm -hmm. Russia's aggression and what was coming. So I want to ask you this question. Um, Put into context how Russia's aggression... Um, uh, I guess informs or shapes your your your, I guess approach to dealing with them. So I, I think uh, your your insights and your and your intuition on Russia are are spot on, JJ. I, I would offer that 
they seek to separate us from our partners. Um, and they're near abroad. That is the most important thing to them, to what was once the Soviet Empire. Uh, they want to make sure that they can uh, maintain a reasonable amount of uh, control uh, in those countries. Uh, they do that to their economic gain. They do that to their security uh, gain. And uh, they would like to separate us from our, our NATO partners, uh, actually. But if you look at the uh, the Russians in the last uh, 10 years or so, they've had, they've had um, strategic modernization plans that they've, they've executed. Um, I think they've had some economic uh, setbacks that probably have not allowed them to do everything that they wanted to do. Uh, but they have they have modernized their their nuclear arsenal. Um, they have had um, experiences in Syria that allowed them to experiment with weapon systems that they hadn't previously exper experimented with before. Uh, they have become a more precise uh, military in terms of targeting, um, and we see them we see them organizing into smaller what we would call tactical groups at the battalion and, and regimental level. And so they've, they've gained some, some uh, experience. Um, they are active in their near abroad. And, and when you count um, the new, sort of the new emerging domains of space and cyber, we see them very active there as well. Uh, whether it's uh, meddling with elections or uh, perhaps uh, the colonial pipeline issue, uh, they, they have demonstrated those capabilities, and, and that's very concerning. One of the things the U.S. has always been good at is preventing strategic surprise. So the nation's adversaries have doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on their efforts to try to do it. Have they had any successes in any of this, in your view, in any way? What is the biggest concern when it comes to strategic surprise from any of these people? Sir, so, so great. that's a great question. First off, let me, let me, let me describe uh, warnings. So I'm, I'm a functional manager within... Uh, the Department of Defense for many different um, uh, things related to the intelligence discipline. Uh, warning, warning is one of them. And so through through our Joint Staff J two, he's he's I've delegated functional management of the warning problem to him, and that makes sense with uh, the Joint Staff um, and the job that they have. And we have a number of tools uh, that we use throughout the intelligence community to to put a persistent stare on perennial problems. Think think of the National Intelligence Collection Assets. Think about the architecture associated with, with having uh, revisit rates and things that we need to do uh, to watch those most pertinent problems. Certainly, certainly uh, the nuclear issue is huge on our warning deck. Uh, certainly the development of new and advanced ballistic missiles is on our warning deck. Um, but, to do, but to do that kind of warning, you, you have to have um, a constellation of sensors and collectors that allows you to be able to be effective in that space. And where we don't have coverage, uh, we have to do things like rely rely on our great attache network where we, we don't have that kind of activity. And so it's this this really nice balance of, of uh, technical measures, uh, human measures, and the ability to quickly report out on that with analysis and, and deliver that to the department in time for them to make a decision. Yeah, I was talking to your counterpart, Dr. Scalise from NRO, yeah, about yeah. that persistent stare not too long ago. Uh, thank you for this information because that gives me a bit more clarity about how that works and how you know, how functional and productive it is for DIA as you look at what you're dealing with. You know, I want to tick off a few of these areas, okay. um, a couple of them, several of them you mentioned already, China, North Korea, Afghanistan, et cetera. But uh, can we just back up and start with China specifically? Their military buildup and their use of cyber to facilitate their military objectives has been on, I guess, a, a bit of a, an upward trend or trending upwards in the last few years. Yeah. How has DIA changed to meet that? Right. So 
Let me let me talk a little bit about China and how how I how I conceptualize China, and maybe we can we can dive from there. And if this takes longer than an hour, I'll, I'll look at my handlers and they'll tell me if we have we can go on. I think oh we, have, we, we have we have we have a little, we have some time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna paint this picture for you. So when when I think when I think of China and, and to have an unclassified discussion about it, I think of, I think of it as a, a three stranded cable. So that that first strand is really is really Xi and what he's been able to do. Um, and his continuity of government and control over the Communist Party uh, and his military uh, to sort of put discipline back into that system um, and to and to modernize his military and to put people in place that he can trust. So that's she's absolute control of the of the of the the PRC system. The second strand would be his Belt Road Initiative, which is the economic engine that fuels everything for him, and he's been quite successful at it. I mean, if you look at that economic engine, what they call the Belt Road Initiative, he, he moves into economies, offers help. Some of that is benevolence, for sure, uh, but much of it is to, to benefit uh, the PRC, uh, where they put resources and assets that comes at a cost, uh, whether that's uh, help with debt or infrastructure projects um, generally leads to other things. And then, and then the last strand in that cable is this military buildup they've had. You know, if you look at the difference between 1990, 2000, 2000, and 2020, it's expanded um, uh, increasingly every every ten years with not only more but much better kit and equipment, um, and they've expanded into cyber and space as well. If you think of that cable, um, it has a sheath on it, and that that sheath represents the the largest theft of intellectual property in the history of mankind. I will say that again for emphasis. The sheath represents the largest theft of intellectual property in the history of mankind, uh, and we we have not been as effective in that realm as we need it to be, and I hope we become more effective with it uh, as we go forward. But, uh, you know, China China has uh, has looked at our way of war, and that probably started since uh, Desert Storm, and every operation that we have done since then, uh, they like what they see, and they want to mirror that kind of capability. Uh, so to a degree, uh, they're, they're trying to copy the best, and and they've amassed some capability right now, and they're 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 attempting to put that together. So, from a DI perspective, we we with our Indo-PACOM partners um, out in Hawaii and other partners in the Asia Pacific region have this moment and this opportunity to keep an eye on what they're doing militarily. Uh, we have to keep an eye on uh, the messaging that they're sending us, and and we have to posture ourselves to be able to strategically compete or posture the department to do that. We've heard a lot in the last couple of weeks about um, Chairman Milley's phone calls to China during the previous administration because of his concern about them getting the wrong message from signs and signals they were seeing coming out of the U.S. And the question I want to ask you regarding that is not about Chairman Milley or the calls, but I'm interested in what the reason that he made those calls which is a matter of public record, he said it. What that tells you about where China is and how China views the U.S. right now? Well, I think I think on both sides there's probably great misunderstanding. Uh, their their inability to read us as they would like to. Probably we have some some um, challenges reading reading them and their intent. And you know, as, as the chairman articulated in testimony, he he was doing you know the thing that chairmans do. Uh, I worked for him. When he was the chief of staff of the army, and and he made very similar phone calls in his role as the chief to his counterparts, I, I don't think that's unusual, and I think uh, the intelligence uh, that he was seeing led him to that conclusion. And, and I won't comment on that, but but I but I think he took the right action. So, do you think that 
based on that and maybe some other actions that China's taken, China really is worried about what the U.S. could or might do and, and, and how they would respond to what it is that the U.S. has in its, for lack of a better word in this conversation, in its arsenal to deal with China. So they really are nervous about this. Sure. I think, I think uh, you know, one of the things that that China and Russia have that we don't is continuity of government, right? And so when, 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 we, when we have elections every four years and, and policies change, that, that, probably, that probably is confusing for them and probably gives them, gives them great angst because there are changes to those policies. Um, we, we have the, the finest military in the world, as you know, JJ, and, and a lot of that capability is in the Indo-Pacific region. And so, um, you know, they, they watch that very carefully, like we watch them very carefully, and, and uh, they're trying to read us just as we're trying to read them. This is, this is the essence of strategic competition. <laughs> Absolutely. Let me just ask one question about DIA, and then I'm going to go back to this list. Okay. Biggest challenges for DIA? Great, great question. Uh, there are a number of challenges. Um, so... You know the bottom. The bottom line for for DIA is in order for us to be as effective as we can be, we have to have an innovative workforce that buys into the mission and really, really gets it. That that has to be a diverse workforce because JJ, I'm 59 years old. If everybody looks like me, we're in trouble. Um, I, I need I need diversity of thought, uh, diversity of where people are from, diversity of where where how people think, um, and diversity of talent. So. We do a great job recruiting diversity. Um, every every couple of weeks, I get to I get to swear in new DI officers to DIA and give them the, the oath of office. I talk to them about that oath and how it changed over time. But we don't do the greatest job retaining diversity. And so at the at the I'd say mid grade level, if people haven't bought in, they tend they tend to walk a little bit. And I, I want that to I want to I want to retain them. So why is the retention a problem? Is it because uh, maybe people, what, are seven years in and they're kind of, mm, maybe I want to do something else? Or is it the lack of, uh, uh, lack of effort? Well, I think, I think it's a combination of factors. And so um, where we really want to be with this mission is for people to embrace it, understand where they fit into the big DI machine and everything that we're doing to defend the nation. Some people buy into that. Others, others seek different opportunities. Um, if a promotion doesn't come as fast as, as people expect it to, that, that, that could be a reason for them to kind of look over the fence. Hey, what's going on at NGA or what's going on over at NSA or perhaps another, another organization or p- perhaps going into, into business where the money is better. Uh, so these, these are challenges that need to inspire leaders within DIA to convince people for the right reasons to stay. So in terms of challenges, I would say, um, you know, the threat certainly keeps me up at night, but, but retaining the right talent to meet the challenges that are coming is really, really important for us and keeps me awake a bit. Okay, so you've jumped down the list about 12 questions, so yeah, sorry, that's sorry, good. Sorry, that's sorry, okay. Sorry. That's perfect. This is a natural... Okay. Natural... We're flowing. We're flowing right? Yeah, so <laughs> I like that. So what are the other things? You talk about threats, yes. What are those other components or elements that, you know, in, in addition to the workflow and the workforce that keep you up? Yeah, so... Um, I want to talk a little bit about technology because, you know, the, um, the intelligence world as it existed in 1984 when I came in was largely a stubby pencil and note card kind of business. Uh, very little automation. And over time, that's expanded rapidly, but it was, um, it was haphazard. And so now we, we find ourselves in the middle of a modernization effort, and it's really, really important that we get it right. 
So we have this thing called the, the Military Intelligence Integrated Dat- Database. It's called MIDB. It basically is the repository for, for everything we know about military installations around the world. Um, think of uh, Excel spreadsheets. Think of uh, support from imagery and other reporting. And it's basically, it's, it's basically a manual inject of information that we know. Now, what if you could take uh, that database with advanced mapping and imagery tools and infuse that with AI and ML, and you get a much richer database that's uh, active each and every day that's taking advantage of what's out there in open source in addition to all the national intel. And what you get is a really, really vibrant uh, database for analysts to use and, and, and much more capable. So having, having the right um, tools to be able to modernize that, but also to have the right people that know how to take advantage of that. So it's an infusion of talent and technology at the same time that makes us really special. And we, we have to foster that and continue to grow it in order to be as good as we can be. So does anything, um, <clears throat> any kinetic concerns factor into that list of things that keep you up? You mean perhaps uh, kinetic from from an uh, uh, adversary perspective? Yes, certainly. Um, you know, we we uh, one of the things that DIO has been most proud of, especially in the last twenty years, is the is support to the warfighter. And so, so during um, our operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had hundreds of DI officers that were embedded in various commands, and, and we even have a, a number of DI officers that are that are deployed right now. Certainly, uh, their safety and their force protection is, is paramount. But even if you think about something volatile um, in the Middle East where we have uh, Shia militia groups that are very active and not crazy about U.S. presence in Iraq, uh, think about our operations uh, in Syria. We, we do have officers at risk, as, as other Americans are at risk at the same time we embark on these military operations. But DIA is always with them, and we are not going to leave. Uh, we'll probably be one of the last men or, or, men or women out. Uh, of whatever that environment is, to, to include the, the way we closed uh, on, on H. Kaya uh, just a few weeks ago. One of the, the last members to leave was, uh, was our, our defense attache who was there. I just gave an award to my office here a couple days ago. That's good. You know, the last time I was here, January of 2019, you had lost some of your colleagues. Right. In that, of, yeah, I remember. Yeah, in that very same scenario that you're outlining, a, a hostile a situation that did kind of went sideways mm-hmm. and you know dia was there so um i'm sure that sure that kind of thing is it factors into what you're you're talking about here right now it, abs- it absolutely does and it's really incumbent on our, our mission services folks and our logistics folks and our and our training folks to make sure that our officers are as prepared as they possibly can be before they go out so so we have the, the kind of training we have the kind of facilities we have the kind of logistics support to make make people as ready as they can be and uh, we try to give them good guidance, good training, and, and security when they're downrange. And, and, uh, and, you know, knock on wood, they, they all come back happy, healthy, and ready to get on to the next mission. Speaking of missions, um, you've talked a little bit about Afghanistan. And, um, you know, back to that strategic surprise piece, um, the Taliban is in charge of that country right now. I don't know about governing because that's to me that those are two different things. Being in, in control of a country and governing are two different things. But one of the things that's very clear to me from talking to a number of experts and watching over the last few years is that people ask this question about whether or not there will be whether the Taliban will allow terror groups to operate there to come there, but. They're already there. I mean, Al Qaeda's never left. ISIS is there, and there are several other organizations there. Um, you know, I think maybe three or four or five there. I'm not sure, but 
What can you tell us about that kind of threat and what um, DIA's approach to uh, staying ahead of it is? So there are, there are really two groups that we're worried about. The first is al-Qaeda. Um, there has been a natural alignment between uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban for many years. Uh, that has not changed, and I do not believe that will change. Uh, while, while the Taliban agreed um, months ago to, uh, to not enable uh, al-Qaeda, I, I think time will tell that if they have freedom of movement in Afghanistan and access to technology, that they, they will become a threat to the homeland again. Um, I've said publicly I think that timeline is something like 6 to 12 months, um, and we'll see. Uh, the other the other group is ISIS-K, um, arch enemy and arch rival to uh, to the Taliban. Um, you know, they, the Taliban released a bunch of prisoners from Policharki prison, and a bunch of those guys were ISIS-K. So um, my prediction is that they, they will regenerate in a way that will not be helpful for the Taliban and that they're going to have to fight them. Uh, whether the Taliban has the capability to get after them, um, not sure. We, we think that um, ISIS-K could, could potentially... Uh, threaten the homeland in like something like a year to two years, uh, left left untouched. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know what the what the Taliban can do is they is they try to get organized with their now their new army uh, and the equipment that they have and their Ministry of Defense, if you can call it that. Um, we'll we'll see what they they can do uh, in this realm. But it is it is uh, it is something that I worry about. It's uh, it's not keeping me up at night, and uh, we will support. Uh, whatever the over-the-horizon uh, counterterrorism effort is that our, our Department of Defense decides to, to go with uh, working with uh, U.S. Central Command. So remains to be seen how all that's going to work out, but DIA, I, I can tell you, I guarantee you that uh, DIA officers will be in the middle of that, however it sorts out. North Korea, moving to another part of the world. Um, how does DIA approach staying informed about that place in such, I mean, it's really opaque I mean to, to kind of do that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you have other thi- other other resources that you're not going to discuss here with a reporter. But yeah. you know, what can you say about how you stay informed about that? So we have we have a, a, a pretty large analytical analytical effort uh, dedicated uh, to North Korea, and it, it is it is what I would call um, you know it's a closed country. It's a hard target. Uh, but we, we have, uh, with our partners at U.S. Forces Korea, the JIOC there, are com- it's comprised of uh, DI officers, so we have a very tight linkage uh, with uh, U.S. Forces Korea, J-2, and that team out there. Uh, General Lecamera is the commander. In fact, uh, he'll, he'll be here next week, and we'll have, a, we'll have a long discussion about this. But I think, I think the warning problem in North Korea has been set for a, for a long time, and the, uh, the way we study that problem, the way we look at it, um, is, is pretty, pretty good and sustainable. Um, you know, they're launching missiles all the time uh, with uh, the tools and techniques that we have. We see most of that, and, and we're able to provide insight uh, into that. Um, this, this, this situation between, you know, negotiations between South Korea and North Korea, that's going to continue to percolate along. I don't, I don't know what the end state will be, but it doesn't seem to me that Kim Jong-un uh, really wants to change the uh, you know the the nature of the way he operates and and I think the rocks don't want to give up a lot either so we'll we'll see where all that goes hopefully we can be helpful in that and provide the insights that the department needs to make great decisions about our footprint on on the on the peninsula general several sources that I've spoken to have said to me that North Korea has missiles that could reach the whole of the United States should they choose to use them uh, and we know that they're working on nuclear weapons um, morning, would the mainland have if they decided to do something like that, uh, just in a ballpark way? 
Well, the uh, you know they have uh, some road mobile capability, and sometimes uh, if you don't have intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance assets in the right place, you you could miss that. Um, I, I would not speculate on a on a timeline for warning in a in a venue like this, JJ. I just just don't think that's appropriate for me to do. But I can I can tell you that in terms of wicked problems, this is this is a wicked problem. We think about it a lot. Guys like you come to this position. You serve usually two or three years or something like that, and then you move on. Yeah. How is what you've learned? How is that? How is that passed on to the next guy or woman who comes into the job? Is there a process, or is there just uh, this you know informal thing? Where you say, okay, let's just have a conversation. You know, when president when presidents change, they um, they leave each other a letter, right? So how do you how do you approach passing that information, passing the torch, if you will? So, uh, great question. I haven't been asked that before. Um, two things. I'll offer two things. Number number one, um, we get great continuity at DI with our with our senior civilian workforce. So so. Everybody that's up on this floor, um, to include the folks sitting around me, have been here for a while, and uh, they're really the continuity between between directors that come in here. I, I think the other thing that I would say, JJ, is is uh, it's a very small community of senior intelligence officers in all the services, and we kind of know each other. So Bob Ashley and I, the guy that I replaced, have been friends for 30 years, and, and so he and I were in a lot of dialogue before um, I replaced him, and I will ensure that I have the same kind of dialogue with whoever whoever replaces me because I know them all, and people are naturally curious once they get the word that they might be doing this. So a lot of lot of phone calls and uh, lots of rumen out there, but uh, we will we will have a plan in place. Bob actually put a really really solid plan in place for me that really covered kind of the first three months of what I did here. Um, he and I talked extensively about what what he thought some of the issues were, and I'll I'll do the same thing for who, whoever replaces me. I want to make sure I haven't missed anything here. I know you had a big event. At Insa, not long ago, and you're you're you're. I'm sure you were very happy about that whole process. So, what were the highlights from that? From the Insa discussion? Yes. Um, well, first of all, it's a great organization, and uh, Tish Long has been a friend of mine for for a long time. And uh, you know, those those events are always, um, uh, I, I guess, it, and it's a good place to be slightly uncomfortable. Because people people are hanging on on everything uh, that you say, and, and it is an unclassified forum. But I, I, but I want to be as transparent as possible. And just in this conversation, um, we've never met each other before, but but uh, we have we have some chemistry here, and I want to be as transparent as I can with you and, and get you what you need. Um, but we we have a story to tell, and that story really really involves all the people of DI who are doing everything they can every day to protect this nation. And uh, I just want to make sure that I don't blow it in an event like INSA. Now, the good thing about that event is, is uh, I had a bunch of panel members with me, um, and we're all friends. We've all known each other for, for years, and, and uh, she was able to spread that around uh, quite a lot, although I didn't expect to get the first question I did. So, so yeah, you never want to be the first question. Well, yeah. you handled it well, I guess so. obviously. I guess so. no. We'll see. What haven't I asked you about that you think is important that we should discuss before this engagement ends? Well, you know, we have um, we have a new strategy. We have a new operating model. Um, we're going to posture DIA for strategic competition, and and I think we'll we'll be successful. Um, you know, if I if I could ask for your help, I would say when when you're JJ when you're out and about and you're you're thinking you're talking to youngsters about 
a future in national security, point them in my direction. I'm, I'm always looking and seeking talent. Now, that's not a question that you can ask me, but that's something I can tell you and ask ask for help. We're always looking for talent, and you you circulate in places where there's a lot of young talent out there that looking for something to do, and and we want to we want to capture that. Well, um, thank you for the invitation to market you. Uh, <laughs> so what I will do is I do speak to, to college kids a lot. And, in fact, I just spoke with a group from Marymount University, and I'll be speaking to them again in a couple of weeks. So I will make a personal – I will say that you've made a personal appeal to them, and, and you've invited them. Um, if, if you don't mind, sure. I, I, you know, it's, these engagements are rare. I'd like to kind of dial back and go back to a couple of hard issues sure, yeah. before we end this thing up. Um, so um, – what are the problems that DIA has right now It's with itself? I mean, we've talked about all of the great things that you're doing, all of the, the efforts that are underway. What are the things that you may not want to talk about but that you will um, a little bit um, that people should know? Obviously, unclassified things mm-hmm. that... That you're just acknowledging yeah. that need to be dealt with, um, and these are things I think that people recognize. A great organization like yours has to deal with, but what are every organization has them? So what are yours? So I, I, a couple of areas. One one is the uh, you know the struggle for resources, and I won't I won't get into specifics, JJ, with with numbers, but I, but I will tell you in a resource constrained environment, we always have to make um, sacrifices and we have to balance priorities and I'm, I'm I want to do more with uh, with what we have um, I have a great uh, deputy director that that tells me to slow down because we, we we don't have that kind of resourcing so we are always balancing priorities and as we shift to strategic competition we know that we're going to have to leave some some things behind and we're going through a rigorous process right now to determine uh, what that is and how we're going to do it but you know given the current economic environment and, and stimulus payback and all of these other all these other financial pressures, um, I don't think we're going to get more money. Uh, mm-hmm. We may be able to sustain the amount that we have or, or um, you know, maybe less. So that's one issue. The, the other thing is, um, you know, DIA is in a lot of different places. Uh, about half or maybe a little less than half of the workforce is here in the National Capital Region, and we're all over the place. And, and sometimes sometimes uh, getting the right person into the right job at the right time is challenging based on, based on where that is. So if you think about sending an officer um, to Hawaii right now, the cost of living is astronomical. Housing is really hard to find, and while people like the idea of serving in Hawaii, it's it's uh, it's the, the practicality of it's pretty pretty tough, and so we we have to balance um, that friction to a degree to make sure that we get people in the right place at the right time. And then and then I would say uh, there's always angst about our promotion system. You know, we used to do this thing called. Um, promotion and position. In other words, you apply for a position at the next grade, and if you're selected, you get promoted. Um, that wasn't really as fair and as equitable as it should have been, and so we went to a thing called rank in person. And now we have a centralized uh, process for, for promotions, and it, it was the right path to go down. And it's uh, it's several years old now, and we're continuing to tweak that around the edges a bit. Uh, but I think it's more fair, more equitable. But, of course, no, one, no not everybody's always satisfied with, with that. Mm-hmm. In an organization that prides itself on excellence, we want to be excellent. We want to get it right. We want to have people that want to work here and want to stay uh, forever. You know, we call it seeds of trees. I want, I want to plant that seed, and I want to grow that, that tree, and, and uh, that's what we're working for. The very last thing from me. 
Each of your predecessors that I've spoken to over the years has left me with a kernel of knowledge or just information that just kind of sat in my brain over the years and informed the way I view and focus on things. And the first was General Maples. He said to me, when I was sitting in his office at the Pentagon, he said, you know, journalists like you are very much like analysts. What you do is you collect information, you analyze it, and you disseminate it. And that's exactly what we want our people to do. And it made me think about how to cover the intelligence community better. You know, what things to do with interviews, the information, and then, you know, reporting. Uh, I think the most significant seed was planted by General Burgess. He said, the biggest threat facing the U.S. and the world is the pace of change. Mm -hmm. And he talked to me about Moore's Law, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And it was the first time I started realizing, well, hell, you know, it's not, this isn't a two and a half year thing anymore. You know, it's Mm -hmm. six months. And that was, this was several years ago. So I'm wondering what it is now. It's probably a couple of weeks based on the way Apple and all these companies drop technology. Mm -hmm. What is, what, what will you leave me with? What would you like to leave me with to think about, you know, as, 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 as I sort of crystallize this, this interaction and look, back at it down the road is something that informed me on how to do my job? Well, uh, a great question. Um, I'm going to leave you two, two thoughts. Um, one, one is about um, leadership, and this, this has been ingrained in me in my now 37 years on active duty, is, is that leaders have to move to friction. Leaders move to friction because leaders have to solve problems. And in an organization like this, with the complexity of the mission, and the complexity of the operate the environment in which we operate now, there will be friction, and, and only leaders can smooth that out. And then the other thing I would tell you about change, uh, JJ, and this this is really a stoic. If you study any anything about stoicism or stoic philosophers, one one of my favorite stoic um, quotes is that the obstacle becomes the path. If you if you uh, if you come up against something that is impeding. You, you, can't, you can't always go around it. You have to go through it, and you, ha- you have to focus on that obstacle to be able to, uh, to get through it. And so as I, as I embark in this organization to make change, I, I view the obstacles as, as part of our path and our journey uh, to get to supporting the department's strategic competition problem. So I, maybe, maybe that's not as great as Mike or Ron's, Ron's but, uh, but uh, that's what I would, I would leave you off the cuff. Thank you very much. I will say this, though. When they told me, each one of them told me what they said, it, it didn't register is what I'm saying. Mm, okay. I mean, it took a little bit of time in hindsight yeah. to go, oh, that's what they were talking about. And that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. So I get this immediately. The obstacle becomes the path. So, you know, thank you. Um, for this opportunity to sit and chat with you today. I hope we'll have another opportunity as time passes. But um, what you've done is you've shed uh, light and insight on some critical issues in the world right now that are changing very rapidly. And that change takes place even more rapidly with each passing day, week, month, and year. So it helps us to understand it. And I appreciate you doing that. JJ, thanks very much. It was uh, it was great to meet you. I look forward to a future engagement, and you're welcome back here anytime at DIA. Thanks. Thank you, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Looking at the items on the list of time well spent, this one quickly became number one. Two hours well spent 
a lot learned, a lot shared. Coming up in our next episode, the CIA is launching a new China mission center, and it's got a heavy mandate. It's pretty clear that uh, China is the geopolitical threat. Joe Detrani, former CIA director of East Asia operations. It's pretty obvious what's happening with China and the friction points. God knows we don't want to stumble into uh, any accidental conflict with, with, uh, with China. A deep look at what many believe is a looming crisis between the U.S. and China, coming up in our next episode. If you have any questions or comments about Target USA, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast. And we'd like as well if you'd follow us on Twitter. We're at T-U-S-A podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha podcast. Also, if you want more national security information, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL. Some of you have seen me on Instagram. And some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, turning topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.